Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 8. Have you heard the phrase, history is written by the, you know it? By the victors. History is written by the victors, right? If you, if you are familiar with this phrase, you know that usually it's not quite a, a, a positive um, phrase. You know, it usually means that whoever wins in history, they get to write history and they get to write it however they want, right? If, if a nation conquers another nation, and they win, then they get to say, oh, you know, it was for this reason that we conquered or they were bad people or whatever, right? History is written by the victors. So usually, like I say, usually it, it's, uh, it's a negative thing unless, unless God is the victor, right? If God is the victor, if God is the one who wins, then it's actually a really good thing that God is the one who is writing history. And we know that God in his sovereignty he is the victor of all of history. He is the, the winner of all of history. And because of his sovereignty, he orchestrates history for his glory and for his purposes. So ultimately, we want God to be the writer of history, right? We don't want other people, we don't want us to be the ones writing history. We want God to be the one writing history because he alone is sovereign and he alone is victor. He is conqueror and, and victorious. So uh, here in Daniel chapter 8, we have uh, a great historical chapter. And obviously from Daniel's perspective, this is not historical, right? From Daniel's perspective, he is receiving this vision that is pointing to something that will happen in the future. But from our perspective, uh, we can look back at Daniel 8 and say, oh yeah, we, have, we see how these, uh, uh, these things have been fulfilled in history. So I hope, uh, I hope you like history because today's uh, sermon will, will deal with quite a bit of, of uh, world history. Uh, so why don't we read the passage and then we will pray um, asking God to be the one teaching us today. So... Daniel chapter 8, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could restore, sorry, who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth 
without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his power, in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four, sorry, the four winds of heaven. One of them came, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, they, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty man and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. 
but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the victor in history and you are the writer in history. And we thank you that the events of this world are under your control. We thank you that nothing happens outside of your will, outside of your command. Lord, we thank you for this vision that Daniel had and it was recorded for many to read and to study and for us today. Thank you, God, that we can be in this room today listening to your word. I pray that by your spirit, you would teach us, you would give us understanding, you would help us to be encouraged and nurtured by your word and by your gospel, by your good news, Lord. We praise you. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was saying at the beginning, uh, God is the one who writes history. In this chapter, we have, uh, we have some historical events, some events that have already happened. And, you know, in all of this, God is in control. And it's really good news for us to know that God is in control. One of the things that we notice in this chapter is that a lot of world events that happened in the course of hundreds of years are described here, but it almost seems like the, like the passage, like the vision is not really that concerned with all of these huge world events like the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great, all of these great uh, uh, empires and people, the passage only mentions them in passing. And then the, the vision really focuses on one particular thing, and this is God's people, right? The reason why there is a focus on this little horn, this insignificant character in the history of the world that many of you probably haven't even heard about, the reason why this passage is focused on this is because this is about God's people, and God cares about His people. God cares about you. Yes, God is orchestrating the events of the world. And yes, he cares about who is in power and who the most powerful people in the world are. But God's concern, God's primary concern is his glory. And God's primary concern is the well-being of his people, right? Remember in, in chapter seven that we saw two weeks ago, remember how Daniel has this vision where these four beasts are coming out of the sea and, and they represent different kingdoms, but the, they are judged and they are destroyed. And the kingdom is given to one like a son of man. And we know that the one like a son of man is Jesus, right? The kingdom is given to Jesus. But then the passage in a really shocking moment, the passage says that the saints of God received the kingdom. The people of God received the kingdom. So God's concern is... Yes, his glory. Yes, his kingdom. 
But the beautiful thing about the gospel is that his concern is to give us, to give his people the kingdom, right? Remember Jesus's words when he says, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So it is extremely comforting to know that God, who is the writer of history, who is the victor in history, it is extremely comforting to know that he wants to give us the kingdom. But at the same time, it is difficult for us to see that when history seems to go the wrong way, right? And think about it for a moment. God is the writer of history. He orchestrates history. How do you think that we humans would write history if we could do it? We would probably forego all the, all the suffering, right? We would write it off. We would forego all the defeats, all the setbacks in the kingdom of God. We would probably forego all of that and just write a very happy ending of saying, none of these bad things happen. We receive the kingdom immediately. We receive all the blessings of the kingdom immediately. And, and we lived happily ever after, right? That's how we would write history. And so when we see that in history, there is a lot of suffering. There's a lot, there is evil, there is wickedness, there is sin, there is tragedy, there is a, a lot of awful things. Then we, you know, that causes us to maybe say, what's going on? Like, God, what, what are you writing in history? And then even more so when, when that evil and that suffering and that persecution is actually directed towards God's people, right? This is what Daniel is, is being revealed in this vision. In this vision, God is revealing to Daniel that God's people are going to be conquered by this extremely wicked king and they are gonna suffer, they're gonna be killed, they're gonna be destroyed and the temple worship will stop. This was, for Daniel, this was like, you know, absolutely insane to think about the fact that temple worship would, would stop completely. That in the promised land, in the land of Israel, the people of Israel would not be worshiping God because of an evil ruler. And so I think that for us, when we, when we, when we see uh, evil in this world, when we see, when we see the, the, the way that God's people have suffered, right? We see it in the Old Testament with the people of Israel being, you know, being destroyed, being uh, uh, taken into captivity by Babylon. We also see it in the New Testament with the church being persecuted. We see it in world history with, you know, uh, uh, the church being martyred for their faith in God. And then we also see it in our lives, right? We see it when illness is winning the battle against our bodies, when sin seems to overpower us, when we are in a rut of depression, when we are stuck in a bad relationship, when Satan seems to be winning. I think that's when we question God as the writer of history, right? If God is the one writing history, if God is the victor in history, then why does it seem like Satan is winning? And so I think that this passage was meant to bring encouragement for Daniel and for his readers, but it was also meant to bring encouragement for us. And basically what I, that, you know, if we were to boil it down to, to the bottom line, I believe that this passage is saying that Satan's limited victories are always ruined by God's ultimate victory. This passage, I believe, is saying that Satan's limited victories 
are always ruined by God's ultimate victory. So what is up then with the ram and the goat and the little horn and, and all that stuff? So uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I had to go back and watch a bunch of YouTube videos and read and, and really refresh, uh, freshen up my, my world history because this is referring to a lot of historical events that actually happened, which is amazing, right? That God prophesied something. He revealed something to Daniel. He said that it would happen in many days and then they happened, right? So I just want to give you a quick summary of what this is referring to. We're not going to go into, into all of the details. This is just a quick summary of what, what is happening. So we are... Uh, the text actually tells us what these two animals represent, right? It, it tells us that the ram represents the Medo Persian Empire, and, and that is the two horns, and the horn that is higher represents the Persian Empire, because if you're familiar with your world history, these two kingdoms or these two, uh, yeah, these two peoples, they, they, they came to power together. They were, you know, brewing something while Babylon was still in power. Daniel received this vision when Babylon was still in power, right? He received it when Belshazzar, who was a Babylonian king, he was still in power, but the ram would rise. And, and so in world history, the, the Medo-Persian empire, they rise and they came and they conquered and they, they became one of the most powerful empires in the world, probably the most powerful empire at the time. And they, I mean, they had, they had, so much land, they conquered Asia, they conquered parts of Africa, parts of uh, maybe, you know, a little bit of Northern Asia, but they couldn't quite make it to Greece. They attempted to go to Greece, and, and if you, I don't recommend that you watch this movie, but if you're familiar with the 300 of Sparta, well, that, that describes some of that history where, where you know, the 300 are, are, fight, are fighting an army of Persians and they, you know, hold them back for I don't know how many days. So this is, this is, I'm, the movie is not, yeah, don't watch the movie. I haven't watched the movie, but, I, but I, I've heard that it's not good. So do not watch the movie. I'm just trying to like maybe explain a little bit of that history. Uh, the point is that the Medo-Persian Empire was extremely powerful. Um, but then something was happening in Greece. Uh, a guy named Philip II from Macedonia, he actually unified all of the Greek uh, states and it became one nation, which at the time was called Macedonia, but now we know it as Greece. And after he united Macedonia, Philip II was actually the father of probably someone you have heard of, I'm sure. He was the father of Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great is this conspicuous horn that is coming out of the goat. It is this one king that is extremely powerful. And just the language of this goat coming and conquering resembles so much the conquest of all of the victories of Alexander the Great, right? It says here that uh, in verse seven, I saw him uh, come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And sorry, uh, verse six actually, uh, no, five, verse five. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the West, that is from Greece, across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. 
I mean, Alexander the Great, his victory, his conquest was so incredibly fast. In 10 years, he had, he had taken over basically the whole, the whole world. He made it all the way to India. Um, and he destroyed the Persian Empire and he became the most powerful empire of the time, the kingdom of Greece of, or Macedonia. But then we know that that Alexander didn't live that long. Eventually he went back to Babylon and he intended to make Babylon the capital of his new empire. But while he was in Babylon, he died. And so that's where we see here where uh, verse eight, when the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So what are these four conspicuous horns? Well, we know from world history that the, the empire was divided between Alexander's four generals. And so I have the division somewhere here. And pardon me, I don't know these names very well, but Macedonia was given to his general Cassander. Uh, Trace in Asia was given to Lysimachus. And Syria was given to Seleucus. And Egypt was given to Ptolemy. And so... You've probably heard some of these names. If you haven't, that's fine. I hadn't heard some of these names either or I didn't remember. Um, so these are the four horns. Now, up until this point, as I mentioned earlier, this vision has just described hundreds of years of world history in, in a matter of a few sentences, right? And this, this tells you about God's view on history. Right For God, all of these things, it's not that they're not important, but God and his plan and in his perfect purpose, he is focused on his kingdom. He is focused on his people. And so this vision comes into focus in verse nine with a little horn that comes out of one of these horns. So uh, I have a, um, when I was in college, I had a professor, his uh, name, he was, he's known as Dr. Fish. And he was, he is, he's still alive. He's a genius, like, I mean, incredible genius. Like he knows like, I don't know, seven languages and he taught himself all of these languages. He, uh, he is, he teaches Hebrew and Greek in the college. He, when he preaches, he preaches from his either, if he's preaching from the New Testament, he'll just preach from his Greek New Testament. If he's preaching from the Old Testament, he preaches from his Hebrew, uh, Hebrew Old Testament. So you, you can tell, you know, that's, that's to give you a picture of how, how incredibly smart this guy is. But if you have met someone, you know, as smart as, as this guy, you probably realize that for us mere mortals, it is just, you know, it's really difficult to track with them. It's really difficult to understand, you know, to go as fast as they are going in their, in their minds. And so... The reason why I mentioned Dr. Fish is because he was my first year Hebrew professor. And what happened on the first day of class, he goes on and on and on on the board. He's writing about, you know, all of these languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, the Masoretes, and a bunch of like tons of stuff. He's writing so much. And all the students are like furiously taking notes and like, you know, just we're all, we're all like, oh boy, you know, we're regretting taking this class. Uh, and so towards the end of the class, he just says, you know, and, but you know what? This doesn't matter. We're not going to talk about this in the class. And he just goes and erases everything. And we're like, oh, what's going on? Well, 
the reason why I mention this, this is not quite what God is doing with this, with this particular section, but this section, like the beginning of the prophecy or the beginning of the vision, which is, you know, again, a, a, a prophecy about world history, about events in the world, they are not really that important in the grand scheme of things because God is concerned with something in particular. God is concerned with his glory. God is concerned with his kingdom and God is concerned with his people. And so this is where the story zooms in. This is where the, where the prophecy zooms in on a particular character. So uh, verse nine says, out of them, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. So several generations later, from uh, one of the kings of the, of the Syrian uh, division of, of the empire, uh, he decided to invade the promised land, right? He decided to invade Palestine and this is where things come into focus with this king. His name is Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. So, if you haven't heard this name, that's okay. It's not it, 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 it's not an event that that many historians focus on because it seems like such an insignificant event in light of world history, right? In light of Alexander the Great and the Roman Empire and all of these things. But again, God cares about His people. And so this is focused uh, here. This guy made the mistake of setting his sight towards Jerusalem, right? Towards God's people. And so he went and he attacked. But here's, here's the, really, uh, the really shocking part of this entire prophecy. And I'm sure that it was shocking to Daniel. I mean, it says that at the end of the vision, he was sick, right? He was sick for several days. Uh, he was appalled. He didn't understand. He was, he was shocked because what this vision was saying is that this king was going to come to Israel and he was going to succeed. He was going to attack, attack God's people. He was going to attack God's land and he was going to succeed. I mean, the language almost makes it sound like he was going to attack God himself and he was going to succeed, right? If you read in verse 10, it says, it grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So this king invades the, the people of God and he is able to succeed. He is able to overthrow them. He's able to destroy a bunch of them and in fact, he makes the temple worship, the worship to God, he makes it, he, he brings it to a, to a halt. Let me read you a little bit of what he did. This is, this is horrible, by the way, uh, just, you know, just so that you're prepared. But this is, this is who he was. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson writes about him and he says, Power hungry Antiochus sought to expand his kingdom to include Palestine. This brought him into conflict with the Ptolemaic dynasty in Egypt. In Jerusalem, he replaced the high priest with a man of his own choosing. He then invaded Egypt, and while, and while there, a rumor of his death circulated among the Jews, much to their joy. Efforts were made to reinstate the genuine high priest, 
Antiochus accused the people of rebellion, savagely attacked and sacked Jerusalem, and executed tens of thousands of its inhabitants, 40,000 apparently dying within the space of three days, while others were taken captive. He entered the Holy of Holies in the temple, sacrificed a pig on the altar of burnt offering, defiled the temple precincts, took the sacred furniture, and established a traitor, Menelaus, as high priest. In, in 168 BC, when Antiochus' efforts to take Egypt were foiled by the Romans, he again vented his revenge on the Jews. More than 20,000 of his soldiers massacred the Jews assembled for worship on a Sabbath day and committed further atrocities and vandalism. The temple was left without the daily sacrifices, religious practices were non-existent, and a, state, sorry, and a statue of Zeus was placed in the temple, and human sacrifices were made on the altar. Circumcision was forbidden, unclean meat was mandatory fare, and the Sabbath and other feast days were profaned. Just think about this. Think about how awful this would have been for the people of Israel. Like basically this king comes, he murders thousands and thousands of them. He brings and sacrifices a pig inside of God's temple on God's altar. He brings a statue of Zeus, a pagan god, and he puts it inside the Jewish temple. He forbids all of the Jewish costumes and he kills a bunch of them. Think about how awful this would have been for them. Think about how awful this was for Daniel. I mean, he, he, we know that he didn't quite understand the whole thing, right? At the end of the chapter, it tells us that he didn't understand, but at least he understood that the people of God were going to suffer. He understood that, that this evil ruler was going to successfully stop the worship of God in Israel. And so, you know, I think thinking about us, I know that we will encounter times when it feels like evil has succeeded in stopping worship of God, right? Whether, whether we're talking about a, at a global international level where it seems like wickedness is rampant and, and no one fears God, no one loves God, whether, it, whether we're talking about at a national level where it feels like our, our, uh, the people in authority you know, are completely against God, but it could also be on a personal level, right? Have you experienced in your uh, times in your life when you are overcome by sin and when you are so overcome by sin that it almost feels like the worship of God has ceased in your life, right? Where you feel so guilty about your sin, where you feel so defeated by your sin, by the enemy, by the flesh, by the world, where it feels like worship of God has just stopped. And so this chapter is good news for us because it tells us that there is a limit to evil. It tells us that God sets a limit to evil. God ruins the victories of the enemy. The victories of the enemy are, tempor are, are temporary. They are limited, but God's victory is ultimate. And this is encouragement for us. So I want to uh, talk to you about some principles that we gather from this book or from this chapter in particular in order to live wisely and faithfully in exile, right? We can identify with Daniel 
and his friends and the people of Israel in the sense that just as they were in exile in Babylon, we are in a sense in exile, right? We're not in our home yet. We are still awaiting to go to go home. We are still awaiting for God to, to uh, consummate his kingdom. And so we are still in exile, but we learn truths from this chapter about how to live wisely and faithfully in exile. So one of the, one of the first things that we, that we see, one of these principles that we see is that evil rulers are sent as God's judgment. Evil rulers are sent as God's judgment, right? We see uh, in verse 23, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions or transgress, it says transgressors, but I believe a more accurate translation would be transgressions. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressions have reached their limit, a king of bold face and one who understands riddles shall arise. And so I think this poses the question of, well, whose transgressions? Whose transgressions have reached their limit? And honestly, I don't know exactly who it is talking about. This is a difficult, this particular verse is a difficult one in a, in an already complicated chapter. But I believe this is saying that at the end of the transgression of the people of Israel, when the transgression of the people of Israel has reached its limit, this king will arise. And so what does that tell you? It tells you that, that, that this king was a part of God's judgment on the people of Israel because of their disobedience. This is not this is not news to us, right? This is something that we have seen over and over in the Old Testament, right? Where the people of God sin against God. This is a, almost a cycle that we see in the, in, the, in the Old Testament where the people of God sinned against him and God warns them and they continue to sin and God warns them and they continue to sin and eventually their transgressions reach their limit and God sends a nation in judgment against them. And this is not something that only happens with the people of Israel. This happens with all of the kingdoms that are mentioned in the Old Testament, right? The kingdom of Babylon, they sin against God, they sin against God, their wickedness, their transgressions reach their limit and God sends another nation to judge them for their sin. And so evil rulers are sent as God's judgment. It was John Calvin who said that when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. Right, So I think that it's good for us to understand that even when there are wicked rulers, even when there are evil rulers in place, it's good for us to understand that God is still accomplishing his purpose, that God is still in control. And, and I know that it's, you know, it's not that great news to think about the fact that, well, maybe we have a bad government right now because God might be judging this nation. But at the same time, I think it's good for us to know that God is at work that God is accomplishing his purposes, right? And that nothing will stop him from accomplishing his purposes. Another thing is that rulers are not empowered by their own strength and power. Their power is derived, right? And, and I think, you know, it says here um, in verse 24 that his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And I think, you know, we are not told if, if this power is given to him by God or if he is empowered by Satan. But I would say those things are, are not necessarily self-exclusive, right? We know that Satan, it has limited control of this world. And so we know that he can empower evil rulers, 
But at the same time, because we know that God is sovereign and that God is in control of everything, we know that he has allowed for evil rulers to have power, right? So evil rulers, they have power, but they don't realize that it's not really their own power. It's ultimately given to them. It's ultimately allowed for them to have this power. Now, the irony of all of this is that with this with this power that they have, they dare to set their face against God, right? With the, with the breath that is given to them from God, they curse God. They go against God. And so this is completely ironic, right? This evil ruler, Antiochus, he doesn't realize that his power is not from him. And yet he dares to go and defy God and wage war against God and his people. Evil is, um, evil deceives and is self-deceived, right? In verse 25, by his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken by no human hand. So this guy, because of, because, uh, during his rule, deceit and, 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 uh, and lies are able to, to seemingly triumph, right? They're, they're allowed to, to take place in, this, in, in God's land, among God's people. But again, the ironic thing is that these people that are bringing lies, they're also self-deceived, right? And so when we think of people that exalt themselves, when we think of rulers that are exalting themselves, I think it's good for us to remember that a lot of them are self-deceived, right? They have, they have ruled by lies. They have conquered by lies. And so they have gotten to the point where they themselves believe that they are great, that they are God or that they represent God, right? The name Epiphanes, Antiochus Epiphanes, actually derives from the fact that he would say that he was the representation of God. Antiochus was so deceived that he thought he was the representation of God. Now, here's the really, really good news for us to remember. God sets a limit to, to evil's victory. God sets a limit to evil's victory. So here is an, uh, um, you know, an, an interesting section in this passage is in verse 13 when there's these two holy ones speaking and one of them asks, well, how long is this vision for? How long is this supposed to last for? And the other one responds, although it responds to Daniel and it says that it is for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now there are obviously, as you, as you might expect, there are a lot of different interpretations uh, uh, for what these 2,300 evenings and mornings mean. I'm not gonna tell you all of them, but I'm going to tell you the one that makes the most sense to me. Uh, these 2,300 evenings and mornings represent a period of time that is just short of seven years. And the significance of this is that in the Old Testament, a period or a full cycle of God's wrath is usually seven years. And so what this passage is saying is that this period of judgment, this period of, of where temple worship is non-existent in the land of Israel 
it's going to be short of a full period of God's wrath. In other words, God is going to put a halt to this judgment that is happening. And if you think about it, this is, this is totally consistent with God's character, right? Where he is so ready to deliver, where he is so ready to forgive those who repent, where he is so ready to, to show his mercy and put an end to his judgment, put an end to, to the evil that his people are suffering, right? God, we have to remember in all of this, right? If we want to be able to survive in exile, to remain sane in exile, to remain faithful in exile, we need to remember that there is a limit to evil. God sets a limit on evil. Think about, think about one of the greatest, quote, defeats, or, or let me put it the other way. Think about, think about one of the greatest victories of Satan in history. And I'm, and I'm thinking about the cross, right? I'm thinking about the time when Satan arguably had its greatest victory and he was, you know, finally able to, quote, he was able to catch the, the, the seed of the woman, right? This child, I'm, I'm thinking Revelation language, he was chasing after the, the child of the woman and he was finally able to kill the Lord Jesus. Right? This seemed like the greatest victory for Satan. This seemed like the greatest setback in the kingdom of God, right? The son of man, the one that would come and receive the kingdom, he is killed. But then we know exactly what happened, right? At, on the third day after Jesus' death, he rose again. He rose from the grave. God set a limit to this defeat, to this victory of the enemy. And Jesus was risen from the dead. And this actually was the greatest defeat that Satan experienced. So what should be our response? I think that our response as God's people is threefold. One of them is we need to take courage in the fact that evil is limited and God's victory is ultimate, right? We need to take courage in the fact that even when things seem really, really bad, right? In, in our lives, in the world, in history, even when, when, when Satan seems to have power and seems to have victory, we know that God will put an end to those things. We need to, we need to take courage in that. Number two, just because we know that God wins in the end, just because we know that God triumphs, we can't be indifferent to whatever is going on in the world, right? Notice Daniel's response in verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel was not indifferent about this vision. Even though he was told, right, that this was going to happen many days from now, he was not like, oh, you know, I don't have to worry about these things. This is going to happen in a long time. No, he was appalled by this vision. He was, he took this vision seriously. He was not indifferent. Now we know that he didn't, un he didn't fully understand this vision. And I think this also teaches us a lesson, 
Daniel didn't pull out his newspaper and he didn't start it, you know, start thinking about like, all right, so what are these nations and and when is this going to happen and all of that? No, he was not. He was not that worried about that. He was worried about the truths of this vision that God would set a, a limit to evil, that God would triumph in the end. And now lastly, Daniel went about the king's business, right? He, he, he was appalled, he was overcome, he was sick, but eventually he went about the king's business. And so this should be a response as well. In light of suffering, in light of evil, in light of this revelation that we've received, in light of God's triumph, we should go about the king's business. And what does this mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean pick up, pick up our, you know, take up arms and go overthrow whatever evil government is in place right now and let's establish God's kingdom by force, right? That's not what Daniel did. Daniel didn't say, oh, so God's kingdom is going to triumph. So I better, you know, I better start the rebellion, the Jewish rebellion to bring God's kingdom to happen. No, that's not what he did. He understood that he was where God had him right now right at the moment. And so he went and submitted himself to the human authorities that God had placed over him, even to this pagan king, right? He was under the rule of Belshazzar, the king that did not repent, the king that was killed by God because of rebellion. And yet he went about the king's business. He submitted to him. But on the other hand, Samuel, not Samuel, I'm sorry, Daniel submitted himself to the king of kings. Right? He ultimately knew who was in power, who was in control of the whole world, of the whole universe. He knew that the kingdom of Belshazzar and, and Babylon and the Medes and the Persians and all of those, he knew that all of those were limited, but he knew that he served the king of kings and therefore he was faithful to him. And many times when all of these pagan kings, they required him to do things that went against the will of his king, he would not do it, right? He would, he would remain faithful to God because he was submitted to God, to the King of Kings. He knew that his allegiance was to the King of Kings. So I think that this should be our response as well, right? We should know that God is victorious over everything. God is the one who is writing history. God is the one who is sovereign over history. And God has accomplished the greatest history, the greatest victory in the history of the world when his son Jesus died on the cross and he rose again and he ascended into heaven and he received all authority and he is ruling right now. And so we can go about the king's business, submitting ourselves to human authorities, but ultimately submitting ourselves to the king of kings. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, we thank you for your rule and reign, you are our king. And you are the victor in history. Please help us to trust in you. Please help us to trust in you even in the, in the midst of setbacks and defeats. Help us to live faithful to you. Help us to remain in submission to you, oh God. You are the King of kings. We thank you for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. 
He is our King. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.